Today I'm talking with David Kobeck, assistant professor at Champlain College in Burlington, Vermont. David is a passionate computer science educator and writer. His latest book, Classic Computer Science Problems in Java, was just published recently. We're talking about teaching and learning programming, Swift, Dart, Python, and Java, object-oriented programming and strong typing, as well as Dave's experience writing books with an established publisher as opposed to self-publishing. Manning, the publisher, had generously provided our listeners with a permanent 35% discount code for all books and other products. You've probably heard of Manning. Some of their bestsellers include Grokking Algorithms, The Joy of Closure, A Well-Grounded Rubyist, Java in Action, Go Web Programming, and more. Use code PODCODEXPANS20 to get your discount. PODCODEXPANS20. Or just check out the show notes. There are also five free copies of classic computer science problems in Java. Check out the show notes as well to claim your code. But hurry, there are only five of them, so they're gonna go fast. All right, let's get to the conversation with David Kopeck. You are spending a lot of time explaining stuff. You write books, you teach, you actually have several podcasts, but at least one of them has the word explain in its name. So obviously explaining complex ideas and technology and programming is important to you. Why? Well, I think this is my opportunity to make the world a little bit of a better place. If I've helped one person go a little further in their career in computer science or software development, and then that person goes on to build something great, build something that, that really improves society, uh, then I've had some little peace in that, then, then that makes me feel good. It's also my career, of course. So I, I work as an assistant professor of computer science here in Vermont at a college called Champlain College. And I spend every day thinking about how I can communicate ideas better to the students. How can I better express myself and get complex topics simplified enough so that um, the audience understands them and can actually make use of them. And so each of these different formats that I work in, whether it be teaching in the classroom or writing a book or doing a podcast, is just another form of trying to simplify more complex topics in an efficient way that people can, can really make use of. Okay, so you kind of see the big picture in that this is your contribution to the, to the humanity, if you, if you will. But um, how did you end up here? I mean, did you think this is what you enjoy doing uh, when you, was a, you were a kid? You, you were explaining something to your pals or how did you get to this place? Well, my dad was actually a computer science professor, so I, I kind of grew up into it, but I didn't think it was what I was going to do. So I went to school and studied economics, actually, in my undergraduate. And then when I graduated, I, I worked on Wall Street briefly, and I hated it. Oh, But I'd always been interested in, in tech, and I'd been programming since I was like eight years old. And I'd always been I'd always been fascinated by it. And I, I had this thinking for a few years that I was going to end up working on the business side of tech. But um, I, I hated working on Wall Street. And I went back to school to do a master's in computer science. And while I was doing that, I got kind of involved in the startup scene a little bit. 
Um, now, I, I did a couple startups. They didn't really work out very well. But during the second one, I started writing a book on the Dart programming language, or maybe it was right after the second one, actually. And the that book was, I think, a good book. It, it, okay. it, it got good reviews, but it, it wasn't a big seller, I think largely because this is back in 2013, 2014. The Dart programming language didn't really take off. It, um, it just was kind of growing linearly and Flutter didn't exist yet. And so there, there really weren't a lot of people using it. The book didn't sell well, but I had a great time writing the book. And the reviews, at least back then, were really great. Now I get a lot of reviews, though it's really outdated because it is. I don't think anyone should read it anymore because the language changed a lot. But um, anyway, so, so that's what got me into computer science education was writing that book. And then I started adjunct teaching at a college in New York while I was working as a consultant building iOS apps. And one thing led to another. I, I was doing well with um, the adjunct teaching and uh, they needed a mobile app developer to be a kind of teaching professor up here in Vermont because they have a, they had a mobile app development concentration at the school. I wasn't like actively looking to definitely become a full-time professor, but I was kind of looking into it as a possibility and they, they liked me. I really liked the school. I've always liked Vermont and one and I already had the book, which they liked. They liked the book. So and I had good reviews as an adjunct uh, professor. And so it all came together and I ended up in a full time position as a as a teaching professor. Um, so it wasn't just one thing, but it was kind of a, a series of steps throughout my life that kind of led me here. But I would say the book was really the trigger dart for absolute beginners that that led me down this path. Interesting. Yeah, it seems like writing books gives you lots of possibilities which you don't necessarily think about in advance um absolutely well slightly off topic but dart did you use it in one of your startups no i was actually just excited about it to believe it or not uh so this was i started writing that book when the language was still in beta so the language hadn't even come out as a 1.0 yet and i had done work professionally in javascript and i really wasn't a huge fan and I was like, wow, Dart looks like a much nicer language to develop web apps in. Um, unfortunately, what happened is they didn't end up bundling the Dart virtual machine inside of Chrome, which was originally the plan, supposedly, was that the Dart virtual machine, so, so running Dart natively, not compiled to JavaScript, was going to be possible in Chrome for end users. But they backtracked on that plan and... Uh, for, for a myriad of reasons, and maybe it was the right decision actually to do that. But regardless, uh, Dart never really took off the way that I expected. But yeah, I was writing the book before Dart even came out. So I, I didn't ever, ironically, I wrote that book and I never actually used Dart on a professional project. So it was a great book though, in my opinion. I think, you know what, that I shouldn't say this probably because it's not good for sales, but I think that was my best book. But <laughs> now, now, nobody, now no, nobody should read it anymore though because it is outdated. So the Dart language is at version two point something now and they've added a lot of features. And the main use of Dart today is for the Flutter yeah. cross-platform mobile development kit. And the that's not covered at all in the book and and the book also doesn't have all these latest features in dart so i, I wouldn't tell people to read it anymore but i actually right. do think it was a really good book <laughs> yeah it's kind of weird that it didn't pan out the language i mean because if someone 
could actually make a, a true native replacement for JavaScript, that's that's Google. So if I didn't know they they were planning to embed uh, a VM in Chrome. Uh, yeah, but they they if they did it, maybe the world would, would have been quite different today. Absolutely. I mean, um, the the fact that they're improving JavaScript, I think part of the improvements that have come with the last couple of revisions of JavaScript are as a result of the pressure from the threat of there being another language. Mm. So I, I would say that TypeScript and Dart have had a really positive impact on the evolution of JavaScript. Well, got to say, it's quite unusual for someone who who had written multiple books to say that the first book is the best. <laughs> well, I mean, I think they're all good books. I, You know, you have to, uh, when you write a book, and a lot of people don't realize this, but it's not just about the writing. There's a bit of sales that goes with it too. So you have to believe in what you're writing and you have to believe in what you're writing to the extent that after the book comes out, you're ready to come on a podcast like this one and say, I really think this is a valuable use of your time to go out and buy this book and, and spend the hours and hours that it takes to read a technical book. Uh, so you need to really stand behind your product and, and feel really confident in what you're doing. Um, so I, I'm not ashamed of saying that I think all of them are, are great books. Uh, and I, I think that, that a lot of people derive a lot of value out of them. At the same time, um, sometimes the book that you know that that you think was really really great doesn't necessarily have the sales that you expect, and that's the case with with the Dart book. That's my least selling book of the four books right. that I've I've been a oh, part of. It makes sense, and it makes sense. But you never know; maybe it's going to come back, and you're going to have a second edition. So they actually they came to me a couple months ago and asked me if I was interested in doing a second edition because Flutter is starting to become popular. And oh. I've, I've just been so out of that world now for so many years. And the book would need a pretty big overhaul to be uh, Flutter ready. And I, I still am not even sure it would be that big a market because the book was for absolute beginners. So people who had no programming experience and never programmed in any other language before they came to Dart. And I think the vast majority of people who are learning Dart are learning it because they want to get into Flutter and they've already been programming in like something else before that so so i said no one of the reasons we're talking today is that you recently had a new book which is actually another book in the series of classic computer science problems and your first book of classic computer science problems was in swift and i wanted to ask you why swift but now i guess i know because you by by that time so that was your second book after dart right yeah that was my second book and the, here i actually had some experience so i had been working as an ios developer swift was still a pretty new language swift came out in 2014 and i was writing the book at the end of 2016 through 2017 and so I, i'd been working for a, a couple years in swift and i also had been building some open source projects that were getting a little bit of traction in Swift. So I, I was, nobody was an experienced Swift developer at the time, but I was as yeah. experienced as anybody else in Swift when I was writing that book. And the idea was I started to be working in computer science education. So I had taken this job as an assistant professor and I already had experience writing a book about an emerging language. So Dart was an emerging language. Swift was an emerging language. And I thought, why don't I combine the two? Why don't I bring computer science education to this emerging language? And at the time, it was a pretty novel idea because there weren't a lot of books yet about Swift 
that were specifically related to computer science education. That's no longer the case. So at the same time that my book came out, my book came out at the beginning of 2018, several other books that brought computer science education to Swift came out. So we all kind of had the same idea. But the, the yeah. idea was to combine an emerging language with computer science education. So it, it wasn't that you wanted to write a book about Swift or you wanted to write a book about computer science. It, it's that you had both urges and you combined them. That's exactly right. Yep. The next one was in Python. So just so I know, I only looked at the Java book, the, the, the last one. But how similar are they? Are they solving the same problems, just different languages or does the choice of language change something in a way that you approach subjects and, and problems in, in those books? Yeah, so the books are quite similar in the computer science problems that they cover. We added a couple more problems to the Python book after we had done the Swift book and we then carried over all the same problems from the Python book to the Java book. Um, the, the idea behind going to another language was the publisher said, this Swift book, it's selling okay. We think the content is really, really good, and it deserves to go to a larger language audience. So bring it to a, not just a top 10 programming language, which is approximately where Swift is, but let's bring it to one of the top programming languages in the world and see how an even larger audience responds to the book. And as we do each book, we're really careful to make sure that we're using best practices in the respective language. So it would be a terrible book because it's, it's highly based around the example code. If we were just taking Swift code and porting it to Python without really making that code Pythonic and really, really using best practices in Python. So we're really careful about that. And uh, these are all three of these languages are languages that I have professional experience with. Um, but we also make sure to have technical reviewers and technical editors on board that are experts in these languages to make sure that, that we're doing everything using best practices. So they do differ in their how much you're going to um, get out of learning each language, of course, because they're in the different languages. But the actual computer science problems are mostly the same with the Python and Java books having a couple more topics that aren't covered in the Swift book. So why Java at this point? Is this because it's another popular language and you're covering bases? Do you plan to continue top, top five, top 10 languages? So the Python book was a big hit. Uh, the Python book has sold many copies and it's, it's been translated into eight languages other than English. And so I guess the publisher was right that we should go to a big language uh, after we did the Swift book. I actually wanted to go to another emerging language because I thought maybe this is my niche, right? I wrote a book about Dart. I wrote a book about Swift. The Swift book was pretty good. Let's maybe take it to Go or maybe Rust or something like that. Right, right. Um, uh, new waves. Right. That was my idea. But the publisher said to me, look, you have you, you teach classes in Python. You have a background in Python. And our Python books are doing really, really well. Python is, by some measures, the number one language in the world. By some measures, it's number two or number three. You, you should really bring this good content to a big audience. And they, I have to say they were absolutely right. So the, the Python book has just been a huge hit. It's, it's in like, it's a totally other level versus a Swift book. Um, and so the Python book did so well, of course, we then thought, okay, let's, let's bring it to another language. So we did a poll of our readers. We, we did a Twitter poll. We actually got like 300 votes. Uh, so it was, a, it was a significant sample size. And we asked, where should we bring the series next? And the top two languages were... Java and Go. They basically tied. 
um, for, for where people thought we should bring the book next. And I am not, I don't have a background in Go. And it, so I would have probably had to work with a co-author if we did the Go book. But I, I do have a background in Java. Um, it's actually was the first language I really got serious about when I was a teenager. And I'd worked with it professionally at a startup. And I, we use it in some of our classes as a teaching language. So I could do the Java book on my own. And that was, frankly, the language the publisher wanted more because they, they just said, look, you did so well with a really popular language, Python. Let's just do another really popular language. So that's, that's how we ended up on Java. But um, the, the Java book is, I think, going to have a little bit of a different audience in some ways than the Python book. I think with Java, you have a lot of enterprise developers. You have a lot of uh, college students as well, because a lot of colleges use Java as a teaching language. Whereas with Python, you have a lot more people in data science, a lot more people uh, who are self-taught programmers. You have a lot more people who don't have a formal computer science education or who don't even work as software engineers who, who use Python. So I think we're not only bringing it to a different language community, we're actually bringing it to a different subset of learners as well when we move from Python to Java. You do have certain feelings, I guess, not, not feelings, but since you do have experience with Java, uh, I wonder now that you have written those three books in three different languages, how do you feel those languages suit those topics? And uh, which one, if you were to just pick one and learn computer science problems, and that, that's your goal, you don't care about the language, about its popularity, about the, mar uh, the market, etc. which one would you choose? Well, that's a hard question because I don't want to disparage any of the language <laughs> communities that read the books, but I'll, but I, I'll, be, I'll be as frank as I can be. Okay. Um, so I, I think, first of all, I think the best thing to do is when you're first learning stick with one language for a while. So there's a lot of people who get this anxiety. I've noticed this among students. They get this anxiety about, am I learning the right language? Yeah. And then they switch from one language to another. It's much more important to stick with one and get competent to the point where you can do sophisticated things with that language than it is to necessarily be using the perfect language for your long-term life. So if you start with Python, stay with Python for a little while. And if you start with Java, stay with Java for a little while. That said, if I did have to pick one of the three, I, I think one of the reasons Python has become so popular over the last decade is because it is so approachable to new learners. Yeah. And so if, if there was just, if you had to pick one of the three, I guess I would say probably Python because it's so approachable, because the syntax is so similar to pseudocode. Yeah. Um, for, for those reasons alone, I th and because the community also is very welcoming. I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful, welcoming community. Um, for those reasons, I probably would say if you had to pick one, Python, but that doesn't mean that, that Java or Swift are not great languages too for, for people learning programming. Although, so you did mention Java is popular in universities and not just to teach Java, but also to teach computer science. And I know this firsthand because most of my first undergraduate classes in computer science were using Java. And Me now too. years later, yeah, so mm -hmm. it's kind of weird. Now, now years later, I think it's kind of weird that, you know, tree traversal algorithms with so much, so much extra code, so much stuff to write, that's not actually about those algorithms, but about Java and, and uh, classes and OP. It's kind of weird. It's kind of unfocuses me. 
So I'm not sure if it's really that bad. Um, again, I would agree with you that something like Python would be a better choice if your only focus is to uh, teach or learn computer science and those algorithms, etc. But how do you feel about the fact that Java is used like that in universities nowadays? Uh, let's take it from a couple different perspectives. So one is that academia moves a lot slower than industry. So Java was the really hot language in the mid to late 90s, and a bunch of professors learned Java at that time, and um, they've probably still been using it for the last 20 years. Uh, so as things move in industry, they don't necessarily move as fast in academia. But at the same time, I think that Java is, by many measures, the most popular programming language in the world, or top three, certainly, depending on which ranking you look at. And I do think it's important that universities listen to what's happening in industry and are balancing theory with preparing students for a practical career. And the fact that Java remains one of the top enterprise languages, it's a benefit to some students to be coming out of university with experience in it and able to hit the ground running at certain jobs. Now, I, I don't think that we should just use whatever language is the most popular in industry in, in, when we teach, but I do think that there's a balance to be struck there. And when you look at the alternatives and you look at the fact that some curriculums are still using even more archaic languages, shall we say, um, even more low-level languages with even more ceremony, Java might be an okay balance. We have seen, if you look at um, statistics, so there's some charts I've seen that, that look at what language is used as an intro language in various universities. There actually has been a move from Java to Python over the last decade or so. So an increasing number of university intro to programming classes have moved from Java to Python. That said, I, I don't think that I really would, would fault anyone for continuing to use Java because it is still such a large language in industry, and it's not a terrible thing to be balancing um, teaching the best teaching language with the best industry language when you think about what you want to provide to your students. Would you personally welcome this change uh, from Java to Python in, in academia? I would, certainly for, for intro programming courses and yeah. for second-level programming courses. And I think the reason that, that I favor that is it's important to engage students and get them excited in those first couple courses. And because you can get so much further with so much less ceremony in Python, it keeps students excited. It keeps them uh, wanting to, to do just a little bit more. Whereas having to go through, like you said, kind of the OOP dance every time you want to do anything in Java uh, yeah. and its verbosity, it does turn some students off. Well, I guess going back to your point of uh, sticking to one language, uh, on the plus side, since academia is moving so slowly, uh, it's sticking to one language for a long time. So that's that's probably good. Uh, it would have been better. Uh, I mean, it, it is better than switching languages and uh, listening to market demands because, well, yeah, then Google comes with this Dart thing and says it's the future, but then it doesn't pan out. Right. There's definitely a risk of that. And I think that you can find ways in your curriculum to incorporate cutting edge languages. Like we have a course that I teach called Emerging Languages. And in that course, I introduce students to Go, Swift, and Clojure. And we use those languages as a framework for actually teaching programming language theory, 
But at the same time that we're teaching programming language theory and how these languages differ, we're also getting them to actually write moderately sized, not, not large programs, but moderately sized programs in all three of the languages. So there are ways to, to kind of strike a balance and say, okay, you know, we're going to have Java or Python as our intro languages. And then later on, we'll, we'll give students a taste of the cutting edge as well. So you ask them to write the same program in three different languages? No, we, we have them write nine programs in total in that course and three in each language. And they're, they're all different kinds of languages, uh, different kinds of programs, excuse me, meant to get at different concepts that we, we want them to learn. So, for example, when they write the Go program, one of the Go programs, Go has this great concurrency mechanism, Go routines. Yeah. So we make sure that they use Go routines in that specific application. And when we have them write the, the, one of the Swift programs, Swift has this cool concept of protocol-oriented programming. And so we make sure that they write the program in a protocol-oriented style. So we try to highlight what's special about each of the languages as we go through the course. And we also then talk about theory and some of the lectures and some of the discussions that we have to kind of bring it all together. I wonder uh, if you had any surveys after that class, how do they feel about those languages? And generally, is there some language that mostly is mostly preferred by majority or is, is, there, is there any statistics like that? Yeah, actually, I, I've done exactly that. At the end of each course, I do, I do give a survey. And one of the questions is, uh, how did you feel about the three languages? Would you Is it Go? Is it Go? Which one they like best or which one they like worst? The best. The best is Go, yeah. Okay. <laughs> the three. Now, they might like Go the best because it's the easiest to learn out of the three. So that, right. that's something you have to keep in mind. But a lot of students, especially some of the stronger students, say they actually got the most out of learning closure because it forced them to think in a different way. It for, and some of the concepts that they learned from closure, they actually feel like made them better programmers more than learning Go or Swift, which felt to them more just like learning a different syntax for things that they already knew. So by being forced to, to actually think in a different way, they actually got more value out of the closure section. But then there's also some students who really hated the closure section. That, so it's the most, um, what's the word? It's the most controversial of the three languages amongst the students. Like some of the students love the closure section because they had to learn something really different and, and that inspired them. And some of them hated it because it threw away everything that they knew from imperative programming and it made them feel pretty uncomfortable, actually, having to that they'd been learning some. We teach this class mostly to juniors and seniors. So it made them feel like what I've been learning the last three years, this is so different. And I couldn't use a lot of the stuff I learned the last three years. And so it made them kind of uncomfortable. And Swift is somewhere in between. The students are, you know, some pretty neutral on Swift, I would say. The language that they say they want to have added the most, there's oh, the last couple of years, there's been a couple diehard Rust fans who say you should get rid of Go or Swift and put Rust in. And that's, I don't personally have a background in Rust, and so it's not probably something I'm going to be doing this year. And I, I think there's a good balance there. I kind of feel like as we go through the semester, we're going from easiest to learn language, Go, to moderately new concepts, Swift, to you know most difficult language. And I, I like to do that in a lot of my courses. I like to kind of have a ramp of going from easiest to hardest from the beginning of the semester to the end of the semester so that students feel like they're continually making progress as the semester goes on. 
Um, if you start students with something really hard, they can get so frustrated and get a little bit of imposter syndrome and then not even want to continue. So I think it's kind of nice having this ramp of go to Swift to closure. Yeah. Well, that sounds like a really interesting class. I think one of my most favorite classes in uh, university was a class called Programming Paradigms. And the idea was kind of similar. We had several different languages which were totally new to us. So it was Scheme and Prolog and don't remember something else. So we just solved different problems in different languages and it was like the mind-opening experience. And um, we had Scheme uh, and you, you had Closure and it was the same experience, I think, among students. Uh, nobody left uh, indifferent. You either love it or hate it, but it, it, it makes you feel something. Absolutely, yeah. And so, yeah, very similar. A lot of universities have a programming languages theory course similar to the one that you described. Our twist on it is just using these emerging languages. Um, so what, what we try to do in our program is we try to prepare students for their professional lives. Our school, we call ourselves professionally focused, while still providing the th enough theory to, to give them a sense of the wider computer science world. So this course, I think, is the epitome of what we try to do in our program, where we're still teaching programming language theory, but we're using it through the lens of languages that are actually being adopted in industry and, and are getting exciting in industry. Whereas Scheme, I mean, it's been around forever. And I, I had Scheme as my second language in college um, after Java. They, they went okay. to Scheme back in my program. Uh, but, you know, it's not a big industry language. It's never going to be in the top 10 of, um, of any kind of ranking. Whereas the languages that we're using are actually Go and Swift are already, by some rankings, top 10 languages. So, so it's, I think this class is really what we're trying to aim for in the whole program, which is balancing... Uh, traditional computer science, including some theory, with what's really happening in industry. So we briefly touched the uh, the idea of OOP dance helping or not helping in in these um, situations. And of course, yeah, that's obvious. If you, you, you wouldn't want to write more code that's not about the the problem at hand. At the same time, it's it's a industry language, and be supposed to to learn it probably, but. What I also wanted to ask you is uh, typing. And I know in the Python book, you used type hints. So obviously you felt that typing at least helps in uh, teaching classic computer science problems. Well, you know, it was by far the most controversial decision that I've made with these books is was using type hints in the Python book. So when I get bad reviews, which is not too often, but once in a while, somebody will write a bad review of the book. It's almost always focused on the type hints. And people say, well, you know, it added a lot of verbosity to the sample code. Um, and Python sample code, of course, is more succinct than Swift or Java sample code to begin with. It does bulk it up a little bit. And then there's also people who are just not familiar with it. They've been writing Python for a long time and they've never seen type hints, so it makes them a little uncomfortable when they do. We do provide an appendix that introduces a jumpstart guide into type hints at the end of the book that people who don't have experience with type hints, I recommend they read first before reading the rest of the book. That said, you asked me why I did it. Well, um, I put type hints in because I think type hints actually reduce your cognitive overload once you get used to them. Here's why. When you use dynamic language like Python and you look at somebody else's code, you don't know what the return type is unless you read it in the comments or 
you actually read through all the code enough to see what the return type is. When you see a type hint, you instantly know, here's what this function is supposed to produce. Here's what these variables are supposed to be. I actually think once you get used to it, it reduces your cognitive overload. Now, not everyone might agree with me. Some people might prefer to read it in a comment, uh, but actually it reduces the amount of comments that you need to write. And it reduces sometimes even the amount of explanation that I need to write um, in the text that goes with some source code because people can just instantly see the types. Like I said, though, some people hate it. Um, and so for them, uh, that, that's the number one usually downside of, of, of the Python book. But I, I think static typing is healthy for people, even though typings are not exactly static typing. But I, I think static typing in general and having the ability to have a static type checker is really a healthy thing, including for people when they're learning. Because sometimes they have an error that they really don't know where it came from, that a static type checker could have told them really clearly and very specifically, here is what's causing your error. Uh, so I think there's a reason that that most mo modern languages, and by or let's say emerging languages, languages that have come out the last 10 years, are statically typed. I, th I think the reason for that is that people have learned the lessons of the difficulty with dynamically typed languages over the last few decades and in production, how many problems that causes. But I think what people underestimate is how many problems they actually cause for learners as well. That said, um, it definitely makes the code a little bulkier and I can definitely see why, why people who are not used to them find it a little uncomfortable that they pick up a book and then are seeing them for the first time. So if I had to write the book again, would I do it again? Um, I'm not sure because I'd love to have prevented those negative reviews, but I have to stand by the fact that um, I, I do think it makes the code more readable. It does reduce the cognitive overload. It is quite important to, to beginners. I spend a lot of time thinking about uh, teaching computer science and programming to beginners, and types is the hardest thing to explain when it's hidden. And uh, there are types regardless of the language, right? So uh, it's just a question of whether it's hidden or not. And everything that is implicitly hidden uh, is more difficult to comprehend. And you, you, you definitely do spend a lot uh, more time thinking about and inferring, doing the work of the compiler basically in your head. Uh, I love the way you put that, um, that, that just the, the not, things not being explicit about types, how problematic that can be for learners. And I think you put it a lot better than I put it. So has your experience been that that um, using type hints, even for beginning programmers, actually improves their, their cognition and their, their recognition of what's going on? I haven't used type hints necessarily, but just explaining two different languages, one statically typed, one dynamically typed, mm -hmm. uh, is just less stuff to explain in the static language even though there is more stuff to explain in terms of more syntax but it's less conceptual stuff mm -hmm. uh, to explain because uh, you still have to talk about whether this function accepts something of certain type or returns something of a certain type but then you have to kind of say but imagine this is the case and kind of remember this is the case and keep this in mind because now you're going to use this uh, function elsewhere you know, the interesting thing is I met Guido the only time I ever met him at PyCon last year. And I met him in a hallway and I just was kind of telling him about 
you know, my book and, um, you know, he, he had been talking for a long time to, to about some other stuff, but then I, I had like two minute interaction with him and it was like a great honor to, to get to talk to him, of course. And I said to him, here's a copy of my book. I gave it to him and I said, by the way, it's one of the first books to use type hints everywhere. And I know that, you know, he's been one of the people spearheading the um, type hints movement. And he actually said to me, he said, you know, I don't think you should really use type hints in a beginner's book. Um, and uh, yeah, he, he said to me, you know, I, I'm adding them to the language for, uh, for, for, for people who need to build things for production and want to catch errors before they, they happen in production. But I think they actually add, you know, the, to the difficulty for beginners. And I, that's, you know, I only got to talk to him for a couple minutes, so I, we didn't get to have a long discussion about it. But that was a little demoralizing, you know, to hear that from him. But I will say at the same time, my book is not for complete beginners. So, so my book is written for people who are intermediate to advanced programmers. Um, so people who, if you're at the college level, I assume you've already had a couple semesters of programming before you pick up the book. And a lot of the people who read the book actually have been programming for years. And then they're, they're actually just picking up the book to refresh their memory or to learn computer science topics, even though they're already experienced programmers. So I'm not writing a book here for absolute beginners. So like I was with the Dart book. So I think actually, you know, for, for people who have just even a couple semesters of programming experience, or in the case of self-taught people, even just a year of programming, which is kind of the, I would say the, the cutoff for people ready to, to maybe read the book. Um, I think by then type hints are, are okay, but I, I can see where Guido's going when he says, you know, if you're just starting for the first time, let's just get them writing as little as possible so they can make as few errors as possible. But then I actually see what you're saying too. And, um, I, I, I feel that way. Yeah. I think it's, it's, it's just a certain point. Of course, I agree with him if it were a book about Python only, and it's a, it's a book for those who learn Python, the beginner Python programmers. Mm -hmm. And yeah, sure, start with less and then gradually introduce types when you actually are solving a problem. And that's what type hints allows, right? It, it gives you this gradual typing, kind of mm -hmm. mellow typing, uh, which is, yeah, a, a, a solution to the problem of complexity in a larger production code bases. Mm -hmm. But uh, the point where, at least in my experience, the point where... Uh, thinking about types gives you problems and introducing explicit types solves those problems it, it kind of uh, it comes rapidly mm -hmm. it's not there at the beginning but at some point you just you suddenly have so much code and you just you want some help so yeah i i don't think you should should have felt de demoralized with that it's uh, i think you're good okay well thank you i appreciate that <laughs> right um, we talked a bit about this thing where universities, on one hand, they do prepare you for real life. So there's Java, there's business and, uh, enterprise oriented stuff. At the same time, they have this, uh, goal of actually teaching you the fundamental theoretical stuff. So I know it's, it's always a dilemma when, when teaching how do you approach this dilemma? How do you approach the problem of some stuff being too boring or too abstract? And I know for some people that's perfectly fine. At least for me, I I love this boring, abstract, non-realistic stuff. I would love to 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 still learn computer science and never think about how that 
particular thing applies to real life. But for most people, and of course for universities to, to stay afloat, they have to reflect some real life. So yeah. how, how do you approach this problem? I tr so I also have to uh, caveat my answer with saying the place that I teach is explicitly professionally focused. So our school, we are trying to prepare students for careers. Um, the, it doesn't mean that we don't give them some theory, but the way I think about it is we're trying to give them enough theory so that they're broad enough that they're going to know when they need the theory, but we're not trying to go so into the theory that that's what the courses become about. Um, so the, the courses are about um, using computer science to solve problems. They're, they're not about um, you doing theory just for the sake of theory. And I'm always coming from a bit of an applied perspective myself because that's what my background is and that's where my, my interests lie and my knowledge lies. So I'm always trying to use enough theory to give students perspective, but not so much that they're, like you said, getting bored or getting um, tied up in it where the theory itself just becomes the purpose of, of their endeavors. Um, so, so I'm always kind of teaching from an applied perspective. And certainly the class computer science problem series is a book series from an applied perspective. So we're teaching you these techniques so that you can use them and know when to reach for them. Um, not just to teach the techniques. And one thing that the publisher actually got right was they said to me very early on when we were working on the Swift book is you need to include a section at the end of every chapter called real-world applications and explain to people how the t problem-solving techniques they learned in that chapter actually are used in the real world. Um, and so I think that's always important to, to couch whatever theory you go into is, is how can I actually use this? Now, that said, there are, like you said, there's people who um, are going to go on to do a PhD in theory of computation or are going to go on to do a PhD in programming language theory or type theory, whatever. Um, that is a small proportion of the students that you find in university. 90 plus percent of the students who graduate with a computer science degree go on to be software developers, the vast, vast majority. And a small percentage go on to graduate school or go on to research roles where they're going to end up actually going into a more theoretical career. And so I'm, I think I have to, fortunately or unfortunately, prepare students for the 90%. Um, and the students who, who want to do the, the 10%, that we have some courses that are more theory heavy. Um, and, but, you know, our, that's not who I'm gearing for. I'm gearing for this, the vast majority of the students and what's going to be useful to them in life. That said, I think learning a certain amount of theory makes you a better problem solver because it, it helps you learn how to think. And I think that there has to be enough theory that you understand the formal basis for what you're doing. But I think that the mistake that a, I'm going to call out other programs, I guess, I, I think the mistake of a lot of computer science programs, at least in the United States, is that they are too theoretical. And I, that's why I think we see these boot camps, one of the reasons that we see these boot camps um, rising so much over the last decade. The boot camps are saying, we're not going to do any theory, pretty much. We're just going to give you enough tools in six months to 12 months so that you can work as a software developer. I think there's a balance to be struck. There's somewhere between a boot camp and a purely theoretical degree. And I think that's the balance that we're striking at our school. Um, but I, I think that more schools should try to strike that balance. So do you think this 
let's say you do strike that balance and for some time you teach in still kind of a classical formal way but finding this balance between theory and practice would you say that is still the best model we have or uh, what i'm trying to gauge is what are your thoughts about just maybe different systems of teaching in general and teaching programming in particular well, I think somebody can absolutely become an excellent programmer learning on their own with all the resources that are available today. So I think somebody who uses free online classes and is motivated can absolutely become as good, if not better, programmer than um, than somebody who got a formal education. That said, there's still a lot of benefit to having somebody who is like your mentor, your coach, you know, your professor who is there to, to guide you every step of the way. And I think there's a lot of benefit to, the, to having um, those, those interactions with your peers as well as you go on the journey. So can that be structured in a different way? Can you learn on your own? You absolutely can. I mean, you can get the, a traditional liberal arts education at a library, right? You don't have yeah. to go to uh, you don't have to go to Harvard to get a great education. You can read the right books at the library, watch the right lectures, which Harvard puts out for free, and get a great liberal arts education that way. Um, does that work for most people? No, uh, I think most people need a little bit of guidance. They need a little bit of push. They need a resource in person that they can talk to and, and answer questions in a very human way. Um, I think that most people are not motivated to do it on their own. There are some people who are, but a lot of people um, are not motivated to completely learn everything on their own. And then I also think that there's a, a balance that we strike in, at least in, in U.S. universities, of teaching most universities some kind of liberal arts core along with the discipline that the student is studying. So that's different than the university system in all places. In some places, you go to university and you basically just study the same subject for four years or three years, depending yeah, on the country. Yeah, I think it's the biggest difference between Chinese and Western universities. Right, right. And I, I believe in our system in the sense that I think people should be broader than that. I think that people should get exposure to a lot of different topics. So, for example, uh, when students are picking a minor, I'm always saying to them, you know, maybe you should do something pretty different from what your major is. So I advise computer science students. And I often say to them, you know, maybe you should do a minor in film or maybe you should do a minor in, um, in a creative pursuit. Or maybe you should do a minor in business. Um, do something, you know, quite different from what your major is so that you become a broader person and you have more different um, areas of expertise to tap into as you start your career. So I think if you want that broad experience, you want that human-centric, people-centric experience, I think a four-year degree is still a great way to get that. Um, that said, motivated people can absolutely become great on their own using using online resources, using um, using online classes, et cetera. I, I don't think that, I don't believe in gatekeeping. I don't think universe, uh, I don't think corporations should be, um, choosing candidates just based on what their degree is. Yeah. Uh, I, I, and I think that I, I know that you do a lot of work in online education. I think there's a lot of gr that you're doing some great work. I think a lot of people are doing a lot of great work in online education and I don't want to take away from that. But I do think for the majority of 18-year-olds, um, they're not self-motivated enough to get a broad education on their own. And I think that, so I do think universities still provide a lot of value in that sense. 
I agree. I totally agree. Even though I do spend uh, time working in this field, I still would say to everyone, if you have an opportunity, at least try to get formal education. Uh, it, partly, yeah, because of the self-motivation and, and just access to people and resources. But even simple things like the... Uh, uh, a physical university, a physical access to university is better than same university but remotely online. Simply, in terms of the the physical context um, of your surroundings, uh, kind of sounds silly, but it it does help at least in my experience. Uh, being in this special place where you learn, and that's yeah. the only goal of that place. And, and there's some intangibles that are hard to put a number on with regards to that. So for example, when um, I happen to be working late in my office someday and some student um, is happens to see my light is on and stops by and talks to me for a half hour about some, some project that they're working on, those kind of interactions can only really happen in a physical space. Yeah. Uh, and, and also with their peers, you know, there, there's, I remember from college, having a lot of fun actually working late into the night with some of my, my peers on, on some projects um, and, and really getting that extra motivation, that extra insight from those interactions. So I think there's something to be said for a physical space. Of course, we're really with the COVID situation right now. You know, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a very difficult situation. We, our college is actually going back to in-person teaching next month. Um, and we're giving students the option. So students can choose to be fully online or they can choose to have their classes in person, and it's up to them. And we're giving faculty the option as well. So we're letting faculty decide whether they want to be in person or online. And it, for me personally, it's a tough decision because I have a newborn child just a few weeks ago. And so I'm, you know, I know newborns are not at a lot of risk for COVID, but you still wonder and you still kind of think yeah. about it. And I, my, my mom is a senior citizen and she lives a couple blocks from me and I see her regularly. And so you know, I think about that, but then at the same time, I think about, okay, if I don't teach in person, am I going to then um, be doing a disservice to the students? So right now I'm signed up to teach in person, but um, I might change my mind, honestly, because I, I do have worries for my mom and for, you know, for my newborn. So, you know, I, I'm undecided, let's say, but I'm right now signed up to teach in person. Speaking of unrelated fields, you have a degree in arts, uh, well, I have a bachelor's of arts, but it's it's in economics. So they just oh. you know they they call it a, they call it a um, you know, it's the art of, of economics. Arts. It's yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, economics like a social science. I guess you could say my minor in undergrad was in English, and I, I will say I think that that helped me um, quite a bit actually in life. So writing these books, I'm not saying that you need to be uh, have a background in English to write a book, but it certainly helped. Um, I think I think it made me a better writer. And I think that, um, you know, uh, it's one of those things like we were talking about earlier, like you never know how studying something a little bit different from your main line of study is going to help you later in life. Yeah. And your book is in English. So that makes sense. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So was it was that degree um, the reason you went to work on Wall Street briefly? Yeah, it was my idea was I would like to work in business for probably most of my career. And I think, you know, I think I'm probably still going to go back to working in business later in life. Um, I'm a pretty young professor, so I'm 33 and I've been teaching for uh, including adjunct teaching for five and a half years 
four years full time. So I'm still pretty pretty early in my career, um, and I definitely could see myself when I'm significantly older um, going back into into the business world. Interesting. It sounds like uh, when I have less to lose, is it that is that it? <laughs> why 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 do you think going back there later in life? Well, I still have the passion for it, but I also love teaching. I mean, I have a passion for teaching too, and life is short, and I want to pursue all of my passions. So, <laughs> um, I, I right now I I'm loving what I'm doing. Um, I get a lot of value out of it personally, beyond just hopefully what I'm what I'm giving to the students. But um, you know, I I don't want to end up you know as a senior citizen looking back on my life and saying. I never did these things that I was really excited about. And I, I am really excited about the tech business. I'm really excited about making software. And so, you know, I, I want to have my cake and eat it too. I want to do right. both. You know, right. so, yeah. It's just you said you hated at that time you worked in, uh, in business. Yeah, well, you know, it was what I was doing. Um, I got a job. So I graduated undergrad in 2009 and I actually got the job in December of 2008. Now, this was the height of the recession. Right. And um, everybody was not getting jobs. So everyone was was doing really badly in, in corporate recruiting. And so I took the first job that I got because I thought, you know what, people are going to feel like I'm really dumb. This was still six months before I graduated. And people, I was thinking, no, people are going to think I'm really dumb if I don't take an offer right now. It was a pretty good offer, too if I don't take an offer given the recession. So I took the job. Um, the job was in healthcare consulting. So it was on Wall Street doing um, work for a management consulting firm, doing pricing and reimbursements on new drugs. So some new kind of drug is coming out. And here you are, 22 years old, with a bunch of other people in their 20s and some people in their 30s and 40s who are managing you, trying to figure out how much this drug should cost when it goes to market. Oh, of course, that was never a job fun. I would. Right, that was never a job I would have chosen if I got to pick what job I'm doing. But this was just the first offer I got, and I, you know, I was applying to most things because of the recession. Um, so I do the job for not even a whole year, uh, a little more than half a year, and I, you know, I'm just hating it. And um, the what I was, you know, some of the projects we were doing, we were doing like cancer drugs, you know, and this, here's a. A drug for somebody with cancer, should it cost $40,000 a year or should it cost $50,000 a year, you know? And yeah. how unethical does that feel? I mean, it felt unethical on many levels. And so I couldn't keep doing it. I do understand why there needs to be people who do that. Um, there, somebody has to come up with the prices. I think that without going into all the details, I think that the way that they were going about it was not a good way and not a good way for society. Um, but, uh, so, so you can see, I guess, probably why I hated doing that job. Yeah. Uh, and I yeah. was really happy to get out of it as soon as I could, as soon as I made the decision to go to graduate school, I was ready to quit and, and stop feeling you know bad about what I was doing. Right. That's, uh, you got some interesting stories, I, I bet. Um, yeah. so the, the last two things I wanted to touch are more of a kind of a personal level. I'm not sure if that, that information is correct, but I, I've read that you lived in three countries, at least, in, in Canada, U.S., and England. You were born in U.S., right? Yeah, I was born in Maine, um, which is a state in the Northeast. 
And my dad was a professor. Both my parents were immigrants, actually. Uh, but my dad was a so we were used. They were kind of used to moving around. Uh, uh-huh. But my dad was a professor who had um, kind of a career that just kept taking him from place to place. And um, we moved to Canada when I was five years old. We only lived there for a year, but it's still kind of like a second home to me because my mom's family actually immigrated to the Montreal area. So my entire mom's family is in Canada. And so I go to Canada before the pandemic. I used to go to Canada many, many times each year. And so I actually am a Canadian citizen and Canada is like my second home almost. Um, Then the UK, when I was 10 years old, we moved to the UK for two years because my dad got a job in the UK. And that was a real, even though I was quite young, I was still old enough to kind of, it was a good age because I was old enough to remember everything. Um, and we got to travel all around Europe and experience, you know, the UK. And that really had a big impact on me on my life. I've, I've been a big fan of kind of an Anglophile, I guess, ever since. But um, it, it really gave me a little bit of perspective at a young age, getting to live there for a couple of years in London. So, uh, yeah, so they were super valuable experiences. Um, and Canada is just very close to my heart as a dual citizen and as, as somebody with a lot of family there, too. I see. Well, that's something we share. I do love Canada too. I spent five years there and I actually been probably close to uh, the places where you lived um, because I spent some time in, in Quebec and okay. I actually been biking nearby. I've never been to the US, but I've I've seen both Vermont and Maine from across the border because I was biking along the path that goes right like a few meters uh, the border. Uh, that's that's really cool. Yeah, I live close to that border. Yeah, and my my brother now he lives in eastern Quebec now on the border with Vermont. Like, so he probably biked right by where he lives now. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a beautiful part of the country. Uh, yeah, Quebec is a beautiful part of Canada, and Vermont, Maine, New Hampshire are beautiful parts of the U.S. Okay, so last thing is going back to your book publishing experience. I just think that. Many of the listeners of this podcast, many of readers of your books are programmers. And I know for sure that for many, especially experienced programmers, one of the things in their bucket list is writing a book, writing a technical book, mm-hmm. probably. And today it's probably as easy as it gets. You can just do it absolutely everything by yourself. Uh, you, although most of your books or all of your books were published by a formal publisher. So I just wanted to ask you about your process. Uh, how does that work? Uh, did you consider self-publishing and why do you still choose going with the with the publisher? And if you have any advice for aspiring authors or developers who want to write a book? It's a big topic. So I hope you don't yeah. mind if I go on a bit. It's, sure. Because uh, I have a lot to say about it. Um, so yeah, so the, all my books were books that were my idea that I then applied to publishers to see if they were interested in publishing. So first of all, a lot of publishers reach out to random software developers. A lot of people listening have probably gotten these emails saying, do you want to write a book? Um, and that means they've already come up with some topic and they, they've looked on your LinkedIn profile or looked on your GitHub or something and seen that, that you're somebody who might be capable of writing this book. That's not necessarily, in my opinion, where you want to start the relationship. It's much better if the book is your idea and you're coming to them and then you actually go to multiple publishers and you get multiple offers from them um, and then you can kind of have them competing against each other to, to get the rights to, 
to write to publish your book that you're writing. Um, so, so first of all, I'd recommend doing that rather than taking an, uh, an offer that you get through email from somebody, some random publisher. Uh, that said, self-publishing is very attractive, obviously, because you keep most of the profit margin. Um, when you write a book as an author with a traditional publisher, you make very little money. Let me be very clear about that. So you make usually a 10% royalty on your first book. So if a book sells for $20, you get $2, literally. <laughs> Okay. Uh, so, so when people say to me like, oh, you know, I bought your book to support you or something, right? Well, <laughs> yeah. yeah, like, like, yeah, I got $2 and the publisher got like, you know, a lot more than that. Now the publisher has expenses too. They have marketing expenses. They, they employ editors, they employ technical reviewers, they employ somebody who designs a cover, they employ a copy editor, they employ financial people, they employ distribution. They have huge expenses. And if you want to get the same quality doing something on your own, you have to hire all those people. So now you have to hire a copy editor. You have to hire a technical editor. You have to get technical reviewers. Um, you have to do marketing. So it's not people think it's like, you know, uh, oh, you know, the publishers are really like, uh, I don't want to use a bad word, but are, are really doing something bad to the authors. Are the are the royalties correct? Probably not. Probably it should be higher than 10%. But, um, but, they're, but they are doing a lot of things that, would be very expensive for you to do on your own. And actually, the publishers lose money on the majority of books that they publish. A lot of people don't know that. Um, the majority of books they publish, especially a big technical publisher, don't sell that many copies. Most technical books don't even sell 2,000 copies. It's rare for a technical book to sell more than 2,000 copies. Um, so it's a big like lift to actually get a technical book that has some kind of success. And it wasn't really till my third book till classic computer science problems in Python that I really achieved, you know, what I would consider like no question about it success selling, you know, 10,000 copies plus. Right. Um, so it's not easy and doing it on your own is even harder. Will you keep more of each book? Yeah. You'll keep 90 plus percent of each book. But it's going to be hard for you to achieve the same quality levels unless you also went and, and hired all these people who are double checking your work, triple checking your work, quadruple checking your work, and also checking other things such as do we have a good marketing strategy? Uh, do we have a good cover design? Do we have a graphics artist who's, who's really doing a good job on the diagrams? I've been frustrated by – I've had two publishers. My first book, Dart for Absolute Beginners, was with A-Press. And my next three books, the Class Computer Science Problem Series, is with, with Manning. And I've had my ups and downs with both of them. And, you know, certainly been points where I was frustrated with them. I'm sure there's been points where they were frustrated with me. Um, but the, what they provide in terms of a platform for distributing the book and all the things that I already mentioned, um, you shouldn't undervalue. And then there's another aspect to this, which is um, the credibility so when you go and let's say you're applying to a job and you're using your book as a credential when you apply to that job, right? It does mean more if it's published by a reputable publisher than if you self-published it. So I think that if you have to think about why am I writing the book? Am I writing the book to make money? Well, you just made a mistake right off the bat because <laughs> yeah. you're not going to make that much money for the amount of time you put into it. You're going to put hundreds, some people, I'm a pretty fast writer, but some people put thousands of hours into their technical book. Um, you're never going to make that back on the amount of money you make from the book unless it's like getting into the MBA if you made that back. Like yeah. you were so successful that you were very, very rare. The vast majority of people, when you, when you work it out, you're going to end up making less than minimum wage. 
on the amount of time that you put into writing the book and getting the book up to spec to be, to be ready for other people to read it. So if you're going into it for money, you already made a mistake. And that's sometimes why people choose to self-publish is because they're going into it for some kind of monetary reason and they think I'm going to make more money self-publishing. That said, of course, I've read the stories of people who've been big successes self-publishing. I think for every person who's made a ton of money with a traditional publisher or self-publishing, there's another hundred people who, you know, made less than minimum wage on their on their technical book. So, you know, the, the, I wouldn't go by the the blog post that you've read about like the self-publishing person who made tens of thousands of dollars. That's pretty rare. Um, so all of that said, I think if you're an aspiring author, you need to ask yourself three questions. Number one, am I going into this for the right reasons? So the right reason is um, you think you're a good writer and you think that you can express things well and clearly to the audience and maybe you're doing it for your career advancement. That's that's an okay reason to be going into it. The wrong reason is uh, I'm going into it for money. Um, the second thing you need to ask yourself, do I want to get maximum credibility out of this book? If you want maximum credibility, you do need to go with a traditional publisher usually, unless you already have your own brand. If you already have your own brand or you, f- you feel you're good enough at marketing that you can create your own brand, then sure. But for most people, um, you're going to get more credibility going into it with a traditional publisher. And then number three You need to ask yourself, how much help do I need with this process? So if you can really, if you think you're so good at English that you don't need a copy editor and you think you're such a talented designer that you don't need a cover design person and you think that um, you're such so good at the programming parts that you don't need anyone to double check your code, well, then you can probably do it all on your own and you don't need to go through the headaches of hiring all of those different people. Um, But if you don't think that you can do all of those things on your own, then again, probably having a traditional publisher is going to be valuable to you as you go through the process. So, you know, I think maybe in the future I will try self-publishing because I, I'd like to see the the difference between the two. My dad wrote nine books and he went with almost all of them with traditional publishers and one or two of them he, he ended up republishing with self-publishing. Uh, and I helped him with that process. And sure, it's possible to do it and do it well, but uh, you're, you really, there's a lot more up against you than you might realize. Well, I think it's a, it's a good advice. I, I agree. And I think it's, it's, this advice applies to many fields in general, is that you have to think about what's your goal, because just writing a book is not the goal. It's the means to the goal. And you could have different goals and uh, self-publishing versus uh, traditional publishing versus many other options are all, they all depend on on the goal and not thinking about that is the the first and the last mistake, I guess. Absolutely. Well, I think it's quite inspirational in any case, and I hope people get value uh, out of this podcast and out of these advices. Thank you so much, Dave. Uh, It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me on the show. And I want to also say that I really appreciate all the research you you did before the show. <laughs> sure. Because, you know, uh, I've been on a bunch of podcasts the last couple of years promoting the books and not everyone takes that time. So I really appreciate it. And, and thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure. Sure. Thanks. Cheers. Cheers.